0: Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, and while you're turning, just a little background about the city of Colossae, which is modern Turkey as we know it today, and a little information about the book of Colossians. This letter was written from Rome during Paul's first imprisonment, probably around 60, 62 AD. It was believed that Paul wasn't really in a jail cell as we know today, um, Many think, uh, just doing a little research, many think that uh, he was detained in a house uh, where people could come in and speak to Paul freely. Paul had the finest Roman soldiers uh, around him 24-7. Even some scholars say that um, they believe that Paul used these soldiers as the scripture that Peter read in Ephesians 6, that he used this scripture as a reference um, to when he wrote the book of Ephesians. Um, it was likely that Paul was preaching the gospel to these soldiers, and he used their uniforms and their attire that they wore in those days as examples as in these letters that he wrote while he was incarcerated. So Paul was contained physically, but not spiritually. I mean, what a way to gain sermon illustrations, right? Being in prison there. Paul had never visited the city of Colossae. Uh, as Todd mentioned, I think, last month, and uh, as he used uh, Colossians 3, um, Colossae was about 100 miles east of Ephesus. Uh, Colossae was a declining city. Uh, it wasn't thriving as a lot of the other cities in that area. Uh, the economy was on a downward slide. It's believed by some that the church was founded by Epaphras and Philemon, who were converted, if, if you've ever read any of those books, that um, they were converted with many of the other people during Paul's uh, three-year ministry in Ephesus. So, yeah, what is the purpose of Colossians? Uh, I believe, personally, I think Paul wanted to counteract the error of the people, uh, that they were denying Christ, the deity of Christ, by, you know, they, they were denying his, um, the, his preeminence and sufficiency. Uh, we're not going to be in this text this morning, but in Colossians 1.15, we're going to be in verses 9-14 through 14, pretty much. But if you look down in 15 through 23, you'll probably find one of the best pictures of the eternal glory of the preexistent, omnipotent, exalted, eternal Son of God, which is our Lord Jesus Christ. Even in Colossians 4, verse 16, you can see that this letter was to be read to the church at Laodicea. A dangerous philosophy called Gnosticism, which we're going to find that a little bit later, so I'll discuss that a little bit later this morning. It was running rampant back in this day. The Colossian heresy of Jewish legalism, uh, which we deal with our own dose of 21st century legalism, which is another sermon for another day. But they dealt with uh, things like uh, circumcision was required for salvation, certain ceremonial rituals of the Old Testament law, which uh, included the dietary laws, the festivals, the Sabbaths, Uh, And they had asceticism, which is a, a big word for, it really describes a lifestyle that characterized by if you abstain from any worldly fun pleasures. Although the city wasn't doing that well, the church was thriving at this time. Many positive things were being done in the local church here at Colossae. It was really prospering spiritually. So let's stand as we read this morning, as we do at Harbin's on Sunday mornings, as we read our text this morning, will be Colossians chapter 1. And I'm going to read verses 9 through 14. Verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. For all endurance and patience with joy. Verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this day. I thank You for this opportunity to be up here this morning. I just pray, Lord, that You would uh, help me to uh, calm any nerves, Lord. I just pray that uh, You would help me to um, recall the things that we have studied for several weeks now on this. And, Lord, I just thank You for each person that's come out, Lord. Just thank You for this body of believers. But, Lord, if it's someone here today in the, a size of this crowd of this size, Lord, that doesn't understand the gospel, that doesn't really see this, we just pray, Lord, in the next few minutes. Lord, that you would open eyes, open hearts, open ears, Lord, that they might hear. And we just pray, Lord, for each person, Lord. We just pray for the ones that could not be here, Lord, for whatever reason that might be. And I just pray, Lord, you'd be with my words. Help me not to say anything that I shouldn't say. Lord, guard my lips. And I just pray, Lord, you'd help me, Lord, in the next few minutes. And I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. In your Bible, you may have a heading over your verses 9 through 14, okay? You might have a little heading that was put in there by the translators, which probably says something like the Apostles' Prayer for Colossian Christians, or it could say Paul Prays for Christians, or Thanksgiving in Prayer, if I were to put my own heading or title above this section, it would be Don't Forget to Pray, which is the title of today's sermon. I originally preached this back in April. Uh, we've talked a lot about since we've had a couple of guest pastors here about our preaching conference, our first annual preaching conference back in uh, April. It's been four months already. And um, we had four churches represented here that day. Uh, and some of you were here as well. And so I prepared this sermon kind of with the pastors and their congregations in mind. So when the opportunity came up uh, during this sabbatical, I've kind of reworked it a little bit, made a few changes here, and um, so it would kind of apply more to our congregation this morning. So I wanna, what I want to speak today about is about prayer concerning our family, our church family here, the body of Christ here at Harbin's. So the challenge I want to give to you this morning is that we don't forget to pray. For each other. Uh, we pray as we pray for our pastor as he returns, as we pray for the leadership here at Harbin's. Now, I know for sure that we all forget to pray for each other for many different reasons. Perhaps some of you struggle with prayer, especially just the fact of not making it a priority in your personal lives. We have to learn to pray. It's a habit that we need to practice on a daily basis we have people come in this building pretty much every Sunday even in the summer so we take a time off from Bible study in small groups but they come in every Sunday to pray for the service to pray for the leadership and the needs of Harbin's each month the men meet here on a Sunday night sometimes for four hours and some of you say, now, what, what do you pray for during that time? I mean, four hours? Well, we pray for each other's needs. We pray for you. We pray for the leadership, the ministries, future ministries. And we pray for our children here. We, we have a lot of children that sit here. And we pray that they would come to faith at a young age. Psalm sixty-six, nineteen 19 says, But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. I reminded the audience that day, uh, back in April here, that we need to consider each other as we pray for those pastors that were here that day and, and that we be united for the sake of the gospel. So we see in verse 9, Paul begins and he says, And so from the day we heard... now." The word so here means on account of, or because of, or for this reason. So before I get too far ahead, before we get too far in this text, I've got to go back about eight verses, just eight verses. I want to look back to verses one through eight to kind of get the context for the message this morning. Now, while we do that, let's keep in mind the question, all right, as we walk through this text, what did Paul hear in verse nine? So I want to go through these first eight verses kind of set the stage here this morning or kind of paint the picture of what we want to look at this morning. So I'm going to read the first two verses of chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now we see that Paul introduces himself And notice he begins with the will of God, not man's will. A.T. Robertson, a great Southern Baptist New Testament scholar, he said this, Paul laid no claims to ecclesiastical authority, kind of how the church is run. Didn't really lay any claims to that. The only authority that he laid claim to was the authority that was given to him personally by the Lord Jesus Christ, an apostle of the Gentiles by the will of God. This wasn't Paul's will. Paul is reminding us that it was God's choice, and only by God's grace, that he was called to be an apostle. And also, if it wasn't for God's grace and mercy, Paul wouldn't be writing this letter to the Colossian Christians, informing them that he was praying for them. Notice Paul always uses grace and peace in his greetings and all his letters. If you remember back Uh, When I spoke on 1 Corinthians, when we went through 1 Corinthians, we took two weeks. I mentioned that uh, back in July, that it was common for Paul to use these words in his letters. He always put grace first, then peace. Uh, Simply put, in in my opinion, I think, if you don't have grace, then I personally believe you will not have true peace. Verse 2, he was writing to the saints, who were those sanctified, the set-apart ones, Unto God, the Hagios, the Greek word, the Hagios in the Greek, the believers, the church at Colossae. Now, Paul's heart was connected to these saints, although he didn't even know these believers at this church. He didn't know them. Can you imagine what it would be like writing to a group of people they didn't really even know? Verse 3 and 4. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. So I asked you a few minutes ago to keep in mind about what we read in verse 9. That they heard something. Let's see what Paul heard. In verse 3. Paul states that we. So he was talking about Timothy was there. Some other people were around him. I remember he was in prison in Rome, writing this. They were consistently praying for the Christians at Colossae. Since they heard, this is what they heard, since they heard of their conversion to Christianity. People were coming to faith in Christ. They were being saved. God was working among these people. This is what Paul heard. People were trusting in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins. One commentary said that Paul could have been He he might have meant that he prayed for, uh, as he prayed, he remembered various different churches in the day. Perhaps he maintained a Jewish practice of prayer three times a day. But we could conclude that Paul was a man of constant prayer. 2 Timothy 1, 3. I thank God whom I serve, Paul writing, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Philemon, verse 4 and 5. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and all the saints. John Calvin said this. One of the natural feelings which God has imprinted on our mind is that prayer, that prayer is not genuine unless the thoughts are turned upward. I really think that those of us here this morning need to be praying for each other as Paul did here in these verses. Notice Paul thanked God for the salvation of these people here in Colossae. He didn't thank the people. He gives God the credit for building this church. The people didn't build the church. We know in Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said that he will build the church. Paul didn't thank the brothers and sisters for deciding to follow Christ, for signing a sign-up sheet. Okay. But we know by other letters that Paul wrote that he never taught that the saints had anything to do with their salvation. Remember last month we went verse by verse again in 1 Corinthians. We use words like calling, chosen. Paul mentions faith and love in these verses. Two virtues of a great church, faith in Christ. Okay, so he mentions faith and he also mentions love which would remind us to love the saints, which mirrors a true saving faith. Now, last month, Todd Upchurch preached here, and he used Colossians 3. And if you remember, he used verses 12 through 16, and he told us about uh, as far as how Christians should act. Remember, he talked about our duty, our responsibility, our job, if you will. So I want to read a chapter 3, which... It's just a couple chapters over in the book of Colossians. But I want to look at verses 12 through 16. Uh, If you want to turn there, that's fine. But listen to these verses as it just applies to how the church was back in this day and now as we look at the church today. Verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness to your hearts in your hearts to God. So back to our text and, and to get in the context in the first few verses in verse five and six. I want to read those. Verse five says, "Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel." Which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Now, notice in verse five, Paul references to the word of the truth, the gospel, which is the complete redemptive work of God. Now it's it, it's clear from a study in history, if you study history that the gospel had not gone out in all the world in the common sense of which we might understand today okay? there was not as many countries, not as many people back in this year here in 60, 62 AD uh, there was not as many people, not as many countries around in the, in the world like there is today What Paul means, I think, here is it's kind of like when we talk about the doctrine of atonement, which we won't get into today, but when Paul says the gospel is coming to all the world, he means that it's coming to the world of the Jews and the Gentiles. Peter, last week, even mentioned this language about particular people in Revelation 5. He's not speaking about everybody without exception, but everyone without distinction. He mentions a third virtue of the true spiritual church, and that is hope. Hope. Faith, love, and hope. That hope is a true confidence. They had a true confidence. Not a wish, you know, not like I wish I get this for Christmas or I wish I get that or some of you might be saying, I wish Tony would hurry up and finish this morning, all right? Not that kind of wish. These believers had an assurance of their salvation. They were fully confident and they were heavenly minded. In verse 6, people were growing and bearing fruit. He says, the gospel and the growing and bearing fruit which has come to you. They were not seeking God, according to Romans 3.11. And Paul says, since the day you heard it and you understood it. Now, look at this. He just didn't say that those who heard it, remember we talked about last month, the general call, goes out, right, the general call. But he wasn't talking about just the people that heard it. He didn't stop there. Did he? He didn't stop. Paul said he continued and he said those that heard it and understood it. We know that some hear it, but not all comprehend. And we close here in the, in the context here in verse 7 and 8 to bring us up to where we want to be this morning. Verses 7 and 8. Just as you learn from Epaphras, our beloved ser- fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit now in verse 7 Paul refers to Epaphras who I said earlier likely founded the church here at Colossae it's believed that he was ministering to Paul in prison even though he wasn't in prison himself he had given Paul a good report concerning the believers here in Colossae, even though the false teachers were trying to get into the churches. Paul wrote Colossians as a response from what he had heard from Epaphras. In verse 8, he says, The Holy Spirit had created love in the believers here at Colossae. If you notice, this is the only reference to the Holy Spirit in this letter. In this letter, Paul referred to the activities of God to Christ that he normally associated with the Holy Spirit. Why is that? Some theologians believe that he did this to glorify Jesus. As I mentioned earlier, the Colossian church was threatened by the heresy of denying Christ's deity. I believe Paul wanted to make sure that people knew that Jesus was God. I believe this was done intentionally by Paul. As I stated earlier, we as a local assembly here, born-again believers, Christians, need to encourage others, each other. We need to lift one another up. How can we be an example of a true church if we don't have unity with one another? I believe we can use what Paul has already written in this first chapter of Colossians as a guide for our prayer life concerning our future relationships, uh, especially within the church here, as well as our family and, and others, friends. So when I was preparing this sermon back in April, I was thinking about, we had a kind of a time constraint a little bit, so we didn't, couldn't put it all together. But I was thinking about what could be said to these pastors, I've already said in attendance here. So I want, this morning, I want to be challenged. I want us to be challenged this morning to not to forget to pray for one another. In verses 9 through 14, as we come back to the text here, Paul challenges us and reminds us of who we are in Christ, where we are in Christ, and where we're going. I believe in these verses, 9 through 14 of chapter 1, Paul gives us instructions, reminders, and reasons as we pray. So I kind of came up with five prayer requests that I believe Paul had in mind for the church at Colossae as we need to remember each other in prayer. So, the first one, we would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual knowledge and understanding. Go, to, go back to verse 9. Paul says, and so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Paul prayed for the saints and the faithful brothers concerning their awareness and their deepest understanding of the complete will of God for them and for all believers. He did this so they would be able to glorify God in their Christian walk. He told them to remind them that their understanding must come through the working of the Holy Spirit in them. And that correct understanding or applying this knowledge is so important to the correct behavior here. Colossians 4.12, you don't have to turn to it, but just over a couple pages. Paul refers to Epaphras. Again, we see this name come up. He writes that Epaphras always struggled. This, this word in the Greek is a, more of a conflict or a competing, competition. Really, it's the English word where we get our word Agony. He was agonizing for them on their behalf in Epaphras as he prayed. He prayed that they would be mature and fully confident in all the will of God. One commentary said, Paul asked specifically that God would give them a full and exact knowledge of all his desires, his will for them. Now, this is interesting here. I think Todd had mentioned Last month, he's kind of a word nerd. He likes the words and everything, but I kind of want to join his club a little bit here. I like these words here. But Paul asks when when this word here, this exact full knowledge, this Greek word here for knowledge, is different than the normal word that's used for knowledge. The word Paul uses here, uh, which is not a coincidence, is epignosis. Epignosis. It means a full knowledge or more precise knowledge. Paul probably prayed for greater knowledge in both of these respects. Back to Philemon, verse 6. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of everything, every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. That full knowledge mentioned here, same word, epinosis, a more precise knowledge as we just read. This word always describes a moral, a religious knowledge in the New Testament. It especially refers to a full and comprehensive knowledge of God's will that rests on the knowledge of God and of Christ. Now, the normal word for knowledge used in the New Testament in the Greek is gnosis. Some of you know that, already knew that. This was the favorite term of the philosophers back in this day. Paul undoubtedly had these guys in mind here when he prayed for epinosis for the readers. He used this different word on purpose. The will of God is what God has revealed in his word to be correct regarding both the belief or our faith and our behavior, the works or morality. In the broadest sense here, the will of God is the whole purpose of God revealed in Christ. This knowledge included spiritual wisdom. John MacArthur says... The ability, spiritual wisdom is the ability to accumulate and organize principles from scripture. In other words, to comprehend it. And the understanding is how to apply those principles in daily living. This knowledge would come to them only by the illumination of the Holy Spirit, hence, spiritual wisdom. Head knowledge isn't enough. The false teachers in Colossae were evidently promoting what they called a deeper knowledge, attainable only by the privileged few, the false teachers and their followers back in this day. The fact that Paul referred to wisdom six times in this brief letter, I believe, underlines its importance. Now, the false teachers here, they promised these Colossian believers that they would be in the know if they accepted these new doctrines. Now, does that sound familiar today? With people coming to your house with a watchtower, the Book of Mormon, another revelation of Jesus Christ, that you would be in the know? Words like knowledge, wisdom, spiritual understanding were part of their religious vocabulary. So Paul used these words as he prayed. So Paul continued to pray as they were filled with knowledge of his will in verse 9 and spiritual understanding. And in verse 10 that they would walk in a worthy manner, pleasing God, bearing fruit, and increasing their knowledge. Galatians 5, 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So our first prayer request, I believe, that Paul had for the people here is that we would be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. All right, number two. We need to rely on God for power to pray. We see this in verse 11. May you be strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. We need to be strengthened with power from the Almighty God as we pray for each other. Ephesians 3.16, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. We need to endure the battle together that comes our way. We have to be patient with joy when things take longer to work out than what we think they should. Ray Steadman said this, Now, there is no power in prayer. People kind of listen to that. There is no power in prayer. There is power in the God who answers prayer. We just finished studying the book of James. I'm always going back to James. Uh, We finished that back in May in our small groups, James 1-2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. God gives you the power and might to do these things. We have to remember that God gets all the glory here. We will have to endure the trials. 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not maybe, not once in a while, will be persecuted. That word endurance sometimes refers to enduring difficult people, where patience sometimes refers to difficult circumstances. Ephesians 3.20, now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. So, our first two points this morning that we would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. We need to rely on God for power to pray. Number three, we need to realize. That God has qualified us. Verse 12: giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in inheritance of the saints in light. Now notice this in verse 12. We must give thanks to God for His mercy and grace, who qualifies us. Now, concerning our inheritance? our deliverance, and our transference. And we'll talk about these here as we go. But here's our inheritance, right? Ephesians 1.11. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. This should give us the desire to pray for each other. We should want to share our faith with others. If you are a believer here this morning, do you realize that you have been qualified by the God of the universe? That word qualified, it means to make sufficient, to empower, to authorize, made able or adequate, render fit for something, or to be privileged, which really qualified could also mean be justified. You didn't do it. I didn't do it. You didn't make yourself sufficient. You didn't empower yourself. You didn't authorize yourself. The word you here can also be translated us, which refers to the elect or to the saints. Now, don't miss this here. Apart from God's grace through Christ... All people would only be qualified to receive his wrath. Say that again. Apart from God's grace, through Christ, all people would only be qualified to receive his wrath. Everyone's not saved. He didn't qualify everyone. The language here again is speaking about particular people. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 and 14 but we all always give thanks to God for you. Paul writing again here. Brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits, or from the beginning, to be saved. Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to this he called you through our gospel. So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, the first three prayer requests. I keep wanting to go over these, that we can help these kind of sink in this morning. That we would be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual knowledge and understanding. Number two, we need to rely on God for power to pray. We need to realize that God has qualified us. Number four, we have to recognize that we have been delivered. We can see this in verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Now, you probably didn't notice this, but the last couple weeks, uh, Rich doesn't know I'm going to say this, but I'm going to pick on him this morning. But if you didn't notice the last two weeks that Rich did the people group, I was listening to his prayers. As many of you were, I'm sure you were too. But I listened to his pray, and Rich has the ability to quote scripture. That's, you know, it's, it's hard for me to retain it. You know, sometimes. Um, but he has the ability to retain the Scripture as he prays. He quotes the Scripture. Well, if you noticed, I don't know if you noticed this, but I caught it. He used this verse twice, each two weeks. Didn't use it this morning. So was hoping going to go three times. But he didn't use it this morning. But he used this verse when he quoted verse 13 about that we've been delivered. And you could tell that his voice changed a little bit. Even when I, when I read this, when I study this, I preach this to myself cutting grass, you know, outside. So my voice changes, you know, probably, you know, whatever. But I, I notice that when I read this, it's like, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. You know, our voice kind of changed and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. I noticed that Rich had that enthusiasm as he prayed that prayer to use this verse. But the word delivered here, it means rescued to snatch out for oneself removing someone from danger right out of to draw to oneself hebrews 2:14 since therefore the children share in flesh and blood he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil He has delivered us, removed us from danger, snatched out from the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. God here is the actor. We are the recipients. There's your deliverance. We already mentioned the inheritance. But there's your deliverance. And here's your transference here. The verb translated transferred in this verse can be described as relocating large groups of people from one country to another there 's plenty of illustrations for this about moving people if you, if you ever moved or whatever. I could only think kind of the airport if you 've ever been on that train down there going from the concourse and everything where large groups of people i don 't even remember if they got seats in the thing I know everybody 's standing up i don 't know if they have seats or not. The Marta train if you ever go downtown, ride Marta large groups of people just get on those train and, I mean and if they didn 't stop at the different stops i mean you 're at your car in about three minutes I mean they transfer. Large groups, and I just for some reason that illustration came up here that that we describe relocating large groups of people from one country to another here. It simply means to remove or change. This kingdom here is a reference to christ 's kingdom as opposed to satan's domain, a s- Satan's sphere of authority and power of darkness. I believe Jesus will rule one day here on this earth, but I think at this time. He's talking about the everlasting kingdom. This is a reality of salvation in which all believers live in currently. Now, we still reside in this world where we know that Satan is referred to in Scripture as the god of this world and the prince of the power of the air. Believers have been delivered from the power of darkness. Yet in another place, Paul warns that we must still wrestle Against the rulers of darkness of this world, Ephesians six twelve, Our translation into the kingdom of Christ, therefore, must be similar to the act of God when he raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places. In Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2, 6. Now, although we are not yet seated in the heavenlies, this thing is so certain that God can speak of it as it's already done. One theologian said it this way about this light versus darkness. Paul probably used this light versus darkness because of the false teachers in Colossae about they were promoting the form of Gnosticism that became uh, is very influential in the second century. Now I mentioned that when we first started. Just a brief definition, a little just a little bit about it. I Won't stay here long. But Gnosticism was a second century heresy. They claim that salvation could be gained through a secret knowledge. Okay? Note the word knowledge here when Paul was using those words knowledge. Gnosticism is derived from the Greek word gnosis, the, the normal word for knowledge, meaning to know. Gnostics also believe that the material world, all this outside of this building here, the matter is evil, and that only the spirit is good. They constructed an evil God and beings of the Old Testament to explain the creation of the world and consider Jesus as just a spiritual God, whatever. Gnostics made much of the light versus darkness in their system of philosophy back in this day. And darkness is also a prominent figure in the biblical, in biblical symbolism where it represents ignorance, falsehood, and sin. But getting back to verse 13, I don't think we quite grasp the meaning of this verse. God has delivered us out of the power of darkness. This is the heart of the gospel. He transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. We were blind and lived in darkness. Controlled by the devil, our father, our natural state was depraved, unlikable. I'm going to pick on Todd again this morning using some of his illustrations. But if you remember... Todd mentioned this last month. This is Todd. It's on the internet. You can can go hear it. But he mentioned that we wouldn't like him apart from Christ. Remember that? He said, You wouldn't like Todd apart from Christ. An enemy of God apart from Christ. He rescued us, he saved us because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. What a privilege it is to pray for each other, to pray for unbelievers, to pray for your family pray for friends. I played in a golf tournament this Friday, and uh, I always try to strike up some sort of a gospel conversation uh, between four guys, and so we were talking, me and another guy were talking a little bit about church and um, church structure, elders and pastors and things like that. I know that it's just this one little brief point in time, uh, he said this to lift me up, and he didn't even know he was doing it. He said, yeah, he said, and he goes to another church, and he said, in our small groups, we, uh, it's so good to have small groups. You know, we don't have a service, a midweek service, but so we, it's so nice to have small groups where we can confess some things and ask for prayer, whether it's an illness, whether it's a family situation, financial, whatever it might be. I said, yeah, it is. It's really nice to have small groups. I told him a little bit about how we do it, and he told me a little bit how they do it. And i never forget, it's just this one little, might not mean that much to, to anybody else. But he said, you know what? He said, man, I kind of have the privilege to pray for other people when they tell me what to pray for. I got the privilege to pray for others. And I said, this kind of fits just right here this morning. Kevin DeYoung, a pastor in Michigan. Kevin says, don't think you're bothering people when you ask them to pray. It is our privilege to pray for each other. Ephesians 2 Verses 4 and 5. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made a life together with Christ by grace have you been saved. So this morning we got four, our first four prayer requests I believe that Paul had in mind here. We'd be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That we need to rely on God for power to pray. We need to realize that God has qualified us. We have to recognize that we have been delivered. And finally this morning, the fifth point. We need to be reminded that God has redeemed us and forgiven us. Look at verse 14. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We have been redeemed and forgiven. The word redemption really means this. It's like someone buys a slave, and once he owns him, he sets him free. First part of 1 Peter 1.18, Knowing that you were ransomed, verse 19 of the same chapter, with the precious blood of Christ. Peter's text last week, Revelation 5.9, The living creatures and the 24 elders sang a new song about how Jesus was slain, and by his blood we are ransomed people. The word forgiveness of sins here means to pardon Or to grant remission of a penalty. God forgives and he redeems us. We don't redeem ourselves. We can't redeem ourselves. If we could, it would always go back to us in something that we did in our bodies. It would be our contribution to our redemption. We would play a part in it. Paul uses this language again by by using the word us, which represents a particular people. Not everyone. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can look at the pronouns that he uses in the next verse in Titus 2.14 Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. I would strongly use this verse for an argument for definite atonement, which would be a sermon for another day. As we close this part of the service, I know most, if not all of us, in a number, uh, in this number here, 80, 90 people, whatever it might be today, most all of us are probably born-again, blood-bought Christians that could say amen to these two words, redeemed and forgiven. But if I'm speaking to someone, maybe you're an adult, or maybe you're a child. Maybe you're a young adult. As we look amongst our crowds, we've got several children in the audience. And Maybe I'm talking to you. Maybe you're a 13, 10, 12, whatever your age might be. And you just don't understand the gospel. So what does all this that I've said this morning mean for the unbeliever? I mean, let's face it. If you've never trusted in Christ alone for your salvation. You don't have that spiritual wisdom or understanding or knowledge, that epinosis that we referred to earlier. When it comes to prayer in the unbeliever, Psalm sixty-six eighteen: if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Proverbs fifteen twenty-nine: the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. The unsaved have not been qualified. You haven't been justified. You're lost and in your sin without Christ. You haven't been delivered. You haven't been rescued. You still reside in that kingdom of darkness. And finally, you have no redemption. You haven't been redeemed. So I want to close at this. You don't have to turn to it, but I want to look at just real quickly. As I close, I promise I'm almost finished. Matthew 13, we all know the, the text. 1 through 9 is the parable of the sower and the soils. And a lot of you have heard these stories. Some of you probably could quote the, the verses here on this. But look at verse 9. If you want to turn to it, that's fine. If not, just listen. Matthew 13, 9. Jesus is speaking here and he says, He who has ears, let him hear. Now, unless you had some, a physical problem or some kind of uh, issue, everyone at this part where he was talking to people had ears. Okay? Some possibly could not hear because of they were deaf. But many had ears, and their hearing was fine, but they couldn't hear. Now let's look at verses 10 through 17 of the same chapter. Jesus was speaking to the disciples, and the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered, he answered to them, and he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, other people he's talking to here, it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given. And he will have an, have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Verse 13 of Matthew 13. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they do not see. Hearing, they do not hear. Nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says... You will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people, Long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. God is the one who saves this morning. He's the one that opens your ears, opens your eyes, and opens your hearts. Are you being called this morning? Remember last month we talked about being called? Are you being called this morning? Not just that general call, but that effectual call. I challenge you this morning to put your faith in Jesus, to trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins, to repent of your sins and come to Christ. If you're a believer today, I challenge you not to forget to pray for each other in this church and to pray for our pastor as he returns next week, Lord willing, here. John Bunyan said it like this, In prayer it is better to have heart without words than words without a heart. So when you pray this week, remember these people that sit in these chairs every week, okay? Remember these people as we go forth together with the gospel. So I'll leave you this morning with the title of this sermon. Don't forget to pray. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this time. Uh, I just pray, Lord, that um, we brought honor and glory to you this morning. And, Lord, I do pray for any lost here in this this crowd this morning. I just pray, God, that you would rescue them, that you would save them. I thank you for each person that paid attention this morning, Lord, the support. And I just pray for them and blessings for them. And, again, the ones that could not be here for illness or whatever, traveling or whatever case it might be, I just pray for them. Uh, as we want to remember them in prayer this morning, Lord. Go with us now as we close this service. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.